Listen. Just listen. I'm Miles Pulaski, and you're listening to Second Story Podcast. Second Story is a hybrid performance series of stories, wine, and music. A collaboration among writers, actors, musicians, and others to create good stories and good times. The stories are written by the performers themselves, sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always thought-provoking. And now, Second Story Company member, Matt Miller. In the summer of 1998, I worked as a trainer at the Wild Wings Bird Show at SeaWorld Cleveland. It was a hot, humid, rainy summer, the summer of 98 in Ohio. It was the summer of... I get knocked down, but I get up again. You ain't never gonna keep me down. I get knocked down. And it was definitely the summer of... Na, 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 na. And it was most certainly the summer of and Jess. Matt. Do you mind if do you mind if I sing with you? Let's do this. Let's do this. I could stay away just to hear your breathing. Watch you. It was definitely the summer of that song. <laughs> it was the summer of a lot of blockbusters. It was the summer of Armageddon, obviously. It was the summer of Saving Private Ryan. It was the summer that Phil Hartman was murdered by his wife. It was the summer that I broke my ankle. And it was the summer I learned about cancer. But mostly, it was the summer that I spent with the birds. As far as Northeast Ohio was concerned, SeaWorld Cleveland was one of the best summer jobs around. Decent money, lots of hot girls, and cool animals. Top five random SeaWorld facts. Fact number one, most people don't know that SeaWorld Cleveland was actually the very first of the SeaWorld, Cleveland, uh, of the SeaWorld theme parks, and it makes a lot of sense as it's very difficult to go whale watching in Northeast Ohio otherwise. <laughs> fact number two, the vast majorities of the animals at SeaWorld Cleveland were either born in captivity or were seriously injured in the wild and rescued. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda Delheimer. Amanda Delheimer, artistic director of Second Story. Back to random facts. Fact number three, SeaWorld doesn't sell pretzels until after 4 p.m. The reason being is that once you've had a pretzel, you're generally pretty full and don't feel like buying more overpriced snacks. Fact number four, you can't get drinking straws at SeaWorld because the water birds eat them and die. Fact number five, and this is a good one, when the dolphins are in heat, the trainers often have to close the observation pool as the dolphins sometimes derive sexual pleasure from throwing themselves against the side of the pool. And on occasion, they have been known to fly out and hit people. And nothing will ruin your day faster at SeaWorld than being hit in the head by a horny porpoise. 
Like all theme parks, SeaWorld was essentially a small city with a very structured departmental government. With nearly 20 different departments from food service to animal care, the park administration saw fit to give every department its own color of standard issue three-button work shirt so that any employee at any given time could be immediately identified with their department. For instance, the color for the entertainment department was black. The color for the horticulture department was navy blue. The color for accounting, a garish pink. As a result, to gaze upon the employee lunchroom at virtually any time of day was to behold a, a living Jackson Pollock painting. Green shirts mingling with red shirts, a trio of black shirts in the corner, a mass of orange shirts lounging against the wall, an ever-morphing human kaleidoscope. Now, with department affiliation also came social status. Not all departments were created equal. At the bottom of the pyramid was operations, or ops as it was known light blue work shirt. Ops employees walked around the park with a broom and a waste can. They cleaned up barf, they were social pariahs. <laughs> Skipping up a couple rungs past the merchandise and ticketing departments, there was food service, the bourgeoisie of SeaWorld Department's dark red work shirt. For two summers during high school, I learned about the snack proclivities of Mr. and Mrs. Middle Class America as an assistant manager for the Shamu Land area. As a quick aside, it was during those two summers that I was briefly knocked unconscious by a low-flying duck. I had thought the duck was flying low, but a lot of ducks fly low at SeaWorld. I can tell you that it is well nigh impossible to look cool after one has just been leveled by a mallard. And if I ever see that duck again, I will fucking kill it. After food service, you have the horticulture department, dark blue work shirt, which is populated by senior citizens and insanely hot college girls. The real sex pots of SeaWorld, however, were the water skiers. Toothsome and bronzed, they looked like they had been assembled by seventh grade boys. To be invited to one of the water skiers' house parties was a badge you could wear the entire summer. Near the very top of the social pyramid, without a doubt, were the animal trainers. Every freckle-faced 15-year-old working the Captain Kidd's stuffed animal treasure chest dreamed of shucking their light green work shirt for the cream-colored V-neck tee of the animal care department. And for the most part, all of the animal trainers were very cool, intelligent people, but generally more comfortable communing with the animals than other human beings. Ultimately, at the pinnacle of social prestige were the park MCs. The MCs were park celebrities. SeaWorld Cleveland employed six or seven MCs that rotated through all of the shows, from the Baywatch Water Ski Adventure Show to the Hawaiian High Dive Luau. Most MCs gained a reputation for being better at some shows than others. Linda, for example, was great in the High Dive Show, but was barely competent at the Hotel Clyde and Seymour, which required a fair amount of uh, improvisation. Brian was pretty good in the bird show, but never really got the requisite melodramatic flair required for the Shamu Spectacular. <laughs> Danny, however, Danny was the best at all of them. Tall and tan with an exceptional wit, Danny was a great performer. In a previous life, he had probably been an elf. 
Everything worked when Danny was in the bird show. The corny bird jokes, the transitions, the false sense of patriotism when the bald eagle was introduced at the end of the show. <laughs> Danny made it beautiful. But I wasn't an MC. I was a trainer. And as fate would have it, I was a bird trainer. A job that requires you to love birds. And furthermore, to help other people love birds, including ducks. The irony was not lost in me. And while I was proud of my cream-colored V-neck tee, what the vice president of entertainment at SeaWorld doesn't tell you when you interview to be a trainer at the bird show is that 10% of the job is doing the show. And 90% of the job is cutting up rat meats and cleaning up bird shit. Every morning, the first job of the day was to prepare the bird's food. And for birds of prey, that means rats. SeaWorld ordered their rats from a place called the Gourmet Rodent. The rats are shipped frozen and are guaranteed to be disease-free. Every night, the last trainer out of the shabby trailer where we kept the birds and the supplies put 50 rats in a Rubbermaid tray to thaw in the fridge overnight. In the morning, two It gets worse. It gets worse. If you need to leave, you should go now. Because I'm about, I'm about to talk about cutting up rats, y'all. It's going to get real. So... And, and every morning, the, the first trainer in would prepare the rats. And by prepare, I mean cut up the rats with a pair of scissors. To prepare a rat, first you cut off the rat's head, then the feet, then the tail. And then you cut up the belly of the rats and pull off the hide, removing the, the abdominal wall and gastrointestinal tract. The birds, like pro athletes at a fine steakhouse, only got the best cuts of meat. My hands smelled of death that entire summer. No soap could entirely remove the smell of dead rats. The cool trainers didn't even wear gloves. I should note this, they did not. However, one of the other trainers and I did perfect a method of skinning the rats so as to leave the rats more or less intact, uh, effectively creating a cute little rat puppet. And every morning we would make two or three little rat puppets and we took to staging scenes from big musicals. We'd, we did the sound of music. A prince on a bridge of a castle, Mount Head, lady, 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 hoo, hoo. And, and we did Pinocchio. I got no strings to hold me down, to make me fret, to make me frown. It was all very sick and very wrong. But the show. Doing the show was definitely fun. The Wild Wings Bird Show took place in a large circular stadium surrounded by soaring maple and fir trees. The stage was a bright green circle of astroturf with various poles and fake trees dotting the perimeter for the birds to perch on. The show was hosted by an MC, and there were two trainers, one for the birds of prey and one for the exotic birds. And a handful of other trainers hid throughout the stadium to catch and release birds at various points during the show. Essentially, the MC would start the show with a welcome and some lame bird jokes and then banter with the trainers as they presented their respective flying critters. As hokey as the show was, the birds were pretty amazing in action and the audiences always lingered in the stands for a chance to see the hawks and owls and condors close up in the, in the meet and greet after the show. My favorite part of the show was introducing the birds. Birds of prey are not the brightest of animals, and as such, do not respond to their names. By the beginning of June, I began to experiment with renaming the birds for each and every show. 
mostly out of boredom, and much to the chagrin of the onstage MC, who then had to use that name for the rest of the segment. I started conservatively at first. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our bald eagle, Hillary Clinton. And then I, and then I got bolder. Now entering the stadium. Our Harris Hawks, natives of the desert southwest, Spamhead and Chunkers. And bolder still. Ladies and gentlemen, now entering the arena on silent and deadly wings, our Eurasian Eagle Owl, roast beef. <laughs> this was generally a showstopper. People would laugh or look confused. Is, it, is that bird really named roast beef? <laughs> and generally the MC would, would look confused as well or break or, or pointedly ask me for the bird's real name, but not Danny. Without missing a beat, Danny would look me square in the eye and say, tell me about Spamhead and Chunkers, Matt. Is it true they hunt in packs? <laughs> Danny was the absolute best. A couple weeks into June, Danny called a meeting and told all the trainers in an uncharacteristic, low monotone that he had liver cancer and that it was terminal and that the doctors had given him three months to live. The pain was pretty severe sometimes, and the narcotics he was on didn't really help. The only thing that really took away the pain was marijuana. A couple puffs, according to Danny, were more effective than two doses of Vicodin. Patrick, the hippie stage manager assigned to the bird show, took it upon himself to make sure that Danny always had a steady supply of good weed for the rest of the summer. In the beginning of July, our red-tailed hawk, Timogen, distracted by a sparrow during a training session, abandoned his routine and flew into the park. In the ensuing Benny Hill chase sequence, I fractured my ankle jumping over a fence. Since I could no longer perform the show, Terry, the head trainer, assigned me to narrator duty at an exhibit called Bald Eagle Point. For the next month and a half, I sat on a stool and answered questions about bald eagles. Hey, uh, mister, is it, um, is it true that bald eagles have sex in the air? Uh, no, no. Uh, that's actually a courtship behavior. Fertilization takes place on the ground, and it's known as a cloaco kiss. Hey, uh, mister, mister, um, did, uh, did that eagle break your leg? <laughs> no, no, it didn't. But uh, eagles are very strong, and uh, in fact, one of the eagles fractured a trainer's arm last summer simply by squeezing its talons so hard, uh, a bit too hard. So they are very powerful animals, that's true. Hey, mister, um, what do eagles eat? Teens, mostly, <laughs> mostly teens and children. Um, Despite the spazzy kids and Gabby tourists, being with the eagles was mostly really peaceful, especially in the mornings when the park was quiet and the birds would cluck softly to one another and stretch their broken wings in the sun. SeaWorld had six mature bald eagles that had all been seriously injured in the wild. Some had been shot by hunters. A couple had been hit by cars while scavenging roadkill. One had been injured in a storm. They were beautiful animals, fierce and proud, and for a brief time we were together in our brokenness. At about the same time I broke my ankle, Danny took a leave of absence from SeaWorld. He intended to do some traveling with his partner to see more of the world before he died, but the cancer was moving too quickly, and he wasn't strong enough to travel very far. So, instead, he and his partner rented a bright red VW convertible for the rest of the summer. 
He called the trailer once in a while and told us about the soap operas he was now addicted to. At the end of July, he rented a big carnival tent and threw himself a going-away party, a living funeral, although he had to lie on a couch for much of it. In mid-August, Terry told us that Danny was coming back for one last day of shows, that he wanted to do his job one last time before he died. We hadn't seen Danny in several weeks, and when he strode up to the trailer, he was impossibly thin. He wore a wan smile, his complexion was jaundiced, and a cowboy hat covered his hair, now brittle and thinning. But the man, the man was undaunted. There were only two bird shows scheduled that particular Wednesday. Attendance was usually down midweek. The other trainers all agreed that that was a good thing, as Danny probably couldn't handle more than two 25-minute shows. At our morning meeting, Terry, who knew Danny the longest, informed the rest of the trainers that she would be performing both shows that day. No one objected. The first show went well, nothing unusual. The birds did what they were supposed to do, and the audience oohed and awed in all the right places. But when the gate to the stadium opened for the last show of Danny's life, the usual sea of tourists in tacky airbrush shirts with their camera bags and strollers and screaming babies was missing. Instead, I watched from my post backstage as a cluster of navy blue shirts entered the stadium, followed by a group of black shirts, and then a handful of green shirts, and then orange and yellow and maroon and white. Everyone had come to say goodbye to Danny. Everyone had come to see Danny do the show one last time. After the show, after all the tears and hugs and laughs, I, I bumped into Danny and his partner on the way back to their convertible, and we walked together for a moment. Then Danny, the consummate performer, asked me, was it a good show? It was a good show, I said. Good, he said. I was afraid it was a little slow. No, I said, it was a good show, Danny. And I wanted to tell him then how much I admired him, how his bravery, his love for life in the face of such terrible adversity would always be with me, how I hoped to conduct myself in times of trial with his same grace and aplomb. But all I could say was, I'll see you around, Danny. Yeah, he said with a half smile. See ya. Danny died a couple weeks later. At the end of the summer, the SeaWorld closes to the public. All the food stands are winterized. Tarps are draped over the flower beds. The Muzak that courses through the thousands of hidden speakers throughout the park is finally turned off. And at the bird show, all the birds are treated to several days of huge meals. A direct result of this feasting is a massive molt. The birds, instinctually sensing that they have enough calories to grow new feathers, drop their old ones, voluntarily rendering themselves flightless for days. They do this because the future is uncertain, and when fortune affords you a good meal in a warm perch, you take advantage of it. They do this because Mother Nature, as any bird will tell you, makes no promises. Getting love has 
the flip side Cause when I wrap up in it I find it harder to work and easy not to try That was Matt Miller. If his story gives you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Please join us for our ongoing series at Webster's Wine Bar and the Morse Land, or one of our upcoming special events. This November 14th, join us at Holy Covenant United Methodist Church. Visit our website for more details. Second Story Podcast is brought to you by Amanda Delheimer, Megan Steelstra, Shannon Sullivan, Mikhail Fixel, and Nick Kawahara. I'm Miles Pulaski. Serendipity is funded in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency, the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, City Arts Grants, the Chicago Community Foundation, a part of the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts Work Fund, and listeners just like you. To find out more about Second Story, the performances, our performers, or to make a donation, visit us at secondstory.com. I've been singing for Jesus. I've been teaching for peanuts. I've been through 30 looks to keep the crowds up here. I was almost a wicked, but I just couldn't stick it. God knew it wasn't for me. So I'm leaving Chicago. Now I'm making my world. I deserve to be happy loving what I do. Thank you so much. Uh, let's hear it for all the performers tonight. How fantastic were they?